somewhere in one of the uh, texts, I think it must be in one of the commentaries, it's said that there, um, that our practice unfolds in, in kind of one of four ways. You'd say the path has, uh, unfolds in, in one of four ways. It's said it can be slowly and with difficulty. It can be quick and difficult. It can be slow and easy, or it can be uh, quick and easy. So I know many of us, I know I would put myself in the slow, difficult category of those four. <laughs> Seems to be maybe <clears throat> what many of us might say suits our perception, our experience. But in another place it's said that there, that, that beings fall into uh, one of four uh, different kinds of categories. Um, those who are moving from darkness to more darkness, those who are moving from darkness to light, those who are moving from light to darkness, and those from light to light. And it's said in this, uh, this description, it's said that uh, that's sort of the criteria for moving to light is said to, primarily it's said to be uh, one who engages in good conduct of body, speech, and mind. You could say one who lives a mindful uh, life with this intention to bring as much awareness to how they're living, uh, to live ethically, carefully. And this is said to be the um, uh, one who is moving to light. And, and so I think in that, no matter whether we think we may say we're in the slow and difficult category, but I think we can all safely say in this regard that we're moving towards light. There's this movement towards, um, in the direction of ease, of peace, of freedom, of a deeper kind of happiness or contentment. <clears throat> in his book on the Noble Eightfold Path, Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, said this at the very end of that book. Liberation is the inevitable fruit of the path and is bound to blossom forth when there is steady and persistent practice. The only requisites for reaching the goal are two, to start and to continue. If these requirements are met, there is no doubt the goal will be attained. So we've all, we all meet that we can all say we've started and to date, at least, we have all continued with persistent application, with uh, the application of, of effort, of bringing this intention into the mind and heart to really cultivate wisdom and understanding, to uh, show up for our life. And I think it's good to reflect on this, that that's what's needed here is to start and to continue. Not in a way that we, we become sort of complacent and, and, you know, there's work to be done. There is attention to be paid. There is a certain kind of effort that is needed. That goes without saying. But to bring to mind this movement 
this wholesome intention that is there in all of our hearts, no matter how we, we would describe that individually, all the, all the seeds that we plant in, with each moment of mindfulness that is moving us in this inevitable direction towards freedom, towards peace. All that we do, all of our good qualities, our good actions, I think it's good to bring this to mind, to really reflect on, on this. And this is actually quite rare. You know, we're part of a kind of rare group here. We are not, as so many people are, in out of confusion, cultivating greed, hatred, and delusion. That's what's going on out there. <laughs> we forget. <laughs> With great gusto. Out of the... Uh, confused, deluded perception that this will lead to happiness. Everyone's wanting happiness. It's when the Buddha said he saw beings wanting to be free and happy and doing the very thing that led in the opposite direction. It's pointing to this. And in one of my earlier talks, I, I used this image of seeing the path as a kind of journey and the Buddha describing himself as a guide along the path, along this particular uh, path, the way he taught about that, this metaphor for uh, our practice or for what we might call the spiritual life. And, and we could say then we're walking this path in this direction of light, of freedom, of liberation, or however, what words, whatever words you might say for this this idea of a goal there, or a journey. And sometimes this journey is described as a journey home. And the Buddha's realization is, is seen and sometimes uh, spoken about as reaching one's true home. And if we think about what that might mean to actually show up at our real home, at our true home, in my mind it brings, it has these connotations of a place of the deepest kind of relaxation where you could walk in the door and there'd be this sigh of relief of having arrived at a place of some kind of real safety or a, a, a true kind of refuge, you could say, or finding one's real home where you can relax the body, the mind, the heart, be at, at ease. You know, in the Metta Sutta we wish, may all beings be at ease this idea of what is involved, what would be this situation where one felt truly at ease. That would include so much. The deepest kind of ease. So if we use this image, then we can see ourselves traveling this path, walking this path to freedom. And this can be useful image if we don't hold it too literally. We have to be careful there because it's not that we're going somewhere else. We're not going somewhere that we aren't already at and we're not getting something we don't have. We end up where we started, but our understanding has changed. That's the journey. This is, uh, these are a few lines from T.S. Eliot in Little Gidding, part of the Four Quartets, a beautiful poem. 
we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. So nothing changes and yet everything is completely transformed, radically transformed, but it's transformed by understanding, by the power of insight, by wisdom, by this direct, deep seeing into the nature of things, into the truth of the way it really is. I think maybe most of us, if we have any relationship to um, the word, the sense of, of Nibbana, or Nirvana in Sanskrit, Nibbana in Pali, if there's any, if we even are willing to let that word into our mind, let alone speak it, we may have a sense of something that's very far away, somehow remote or high or, or beyond anything that, that we might hope to realize. Or maybe we think it's some old fashioned thing that they used to talk about back when the Buddha was walking around. And, and maybe we have the sense of some vague undefined kind of unknowable goal that no one seems to be really willing to talk about that we might be able to get like you know if we if we work hard enough like some kind of reward we might obtain if we practice hard enough and do enough come to enough meditation retreats like this and i think there's a, a way that this uh, this kind of, of relationship to this, this way of thinking is compounded by the limitations of language when we try to speak about something which is in some essential way impossible to speak about because it's so beyond the word world of thought and language. It's not of that world and it's impossible to define and often the best anyone can do is, is try to point at it either by saying what it isn't, not this, not this, not this, or, or alluding to certain qualities or characteristics in kind of vague and, and often sort of poetic ways. And you know, we can get a sense for this difficulty when we think about, just think about how it is to try to describe your experience in meditation to someone who's never meditated, or even to try to give the, you know, if you come in to meet with one of the teachers to give them some sense of what your inner experience is. And you can just kind of point at it, but it's the subtlety of the inner experience so hard to put into words. You can just, well, it's kind of like this in there. <laughs> Feels like this. Or, you know, even let's say you were going to try to talk to someone about eating some, something that you really love, like, or let's say that you really like um, mangoes or some other fruit, and you want to try to tell someone who's never seen one or had any experience of it what it's like, and you go on and on about how beautiful they are to look at and how they smell, and you peel them, and they're so juicy, and they taste the best thing. But until someone actually 
gets a hold of one and eats it, <laughs> they won't have any idea. Or they'll have an idea <laughs> only. It's like reading a menu. You could memorize it, but unless you go into a restaurant and order something, you're not going to know anything real there. This is a quotation from uh, a text called The Questions of King Melinda. It was a king who was a real yogi who was talking to, uh, his name was Melinda, talking to a monk who was his teacher. And he, he in this text, there's a series of, of questions and answers about Dhamma and the nature of reality and all kinds of things. And, and this is an answer to a question that the king has posed. Just as space is not produced, does not age, does not suffer death, does not pass out of existence, does not come into existence, cannot be forcibly handled, cannot be carried away by thieves, rests on nothing, is the pathway of birds, presents no obstacles, is endless. So also Nibbana is not produced, does not age, does not suffer death, does not pass out of existence, does not come into existence, cannot be forcibly handled, cannot be carried away by thieves, rests on nothing, is the pathway of the noble, presents no obstacles, is endless. And this is from a passage in the Samyutta Nikaya where the Buddha is uh, answering a question posed by the Brahmin Kappa. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession and of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay, and this is why I call it Nibbana. And it sounds so beautiful, an island there is an island which you cannot go beyond. It's a place of non-attachment, of non-possession. It doesn't age. It never came into existence and it will never pass out of existence. And we might find this beautiful in some way and may point to something ineffable that we may get some sense for. But also, if it leads this, to this tendency to say, well, it's out there and we might find it some way. We, we know we don't have it now. <laughs> That's clear to us in some moments at least, more clear than at others. And we have no idea what it might be, some place or state, some beautiful island we might somehow by some grace arrive at. And even though these kinds of, you know, these, these verses like this, they might inspire and energize the practice in moments, they can also have a tendency to, to have us get us searching in the wrong direction, looking in the wrong direction, the wrong place. And if we're looking in the wrong way or in the wrong direction, we're not gonna find what we're looking for, or it's not very likely. And so then when we see this idea of freedom or awakening, enlightenment, nibbana, 
in this way of some far off possibility in some future state of grace. Maybe it's only available for certain special kinds of beings. And then we start looking for it somewhere outside, out there somewhere. And we don't see we're swimming in it all the time. If it's not here all the time, it's not the real deal. We're swimming in this, in this truth. And we put it somewhere outside of ourselves, outside of this moment and this experience right now. Someone last year gave me this uh, book. It was uh, sort of a biography of a monk who was in the Thai forest tradition. He was uh, English born, named Ajahn Panyavado. And I, when I saw the book, I said, oh, Ajahn Panyavado, I met him. I had a chance to practice. Um, I was living at a place, a monastery in Thailand, and he came to visit and was there for a week or 10 days once and got to meet with him. He was very generous and at this time we could meet with him and just talk Dhamma and ask questions. He was a student, uh, disciple of Ajahn Mahabua, very famous monk in the Thai forest tradition, regarded as having been fully enlightened. And uh, I got to meet Ajahn Mahabua that year also. He came twice to the monastery. He was 92 then. And this, he was incredible <laughs> dynamo of energy. We cruised all around the sala, like the meditation hall, and there were pictures. It's much more, much more stuff in there than we have here. And, and looking to make sure it was clean behind the shrine. And he was amazing energy at that age. And in, in this book, Ajahn Panyavado, he was probably uh, the, one of the first of the Westerners who ordained in the Thai forest tradition, at least in, in modern times, back in the 50s. He was born, he ordained the year I was born, 1955. He said this in that book. I'd say that Nibbana is already there in everybody and everybody knows it, but they don't recognize it. Intuitively, we know there is something better than this world, but we don't know what it is. And so we search for it. And because we have an array of senses to work with, we tend to focus out in the direction of the senses, looking there for true happiness. Of course, that's searching in the wrong direction. And we don't see it because our conditioning is so strong to look outside for the source of our struggles and for the solution to them. And, and we, we don't know anywhere else to look. But the result is often frustration and disappointment because we don't find it out there in the world of transient experiences. Because we're just looking in the wrong place or in the wrong direction, you could say, or in the wrong way. And it's a setup for suffering and then we suffer. And when we do, we, we blame the world and point here and there to fix the blame somewhere, but the world's not to blame. It's just doing its thing. <laughs> it's just nature unfolding lawfully. 
It's just that we're grasping at these worldly conditions and these transient sense contacts in the, in the hope that they'll, they'll be the answer. And they are the vehicle for the answer, but we're just asking them to do something they can't do. And this practice requires that we radically transform the way we look at things and, and let go of our attachment to our perceptions and all that we hold to be true about the nature of reality and about ourselves. And who and what we think we are. And if we approach it in the right, right way, then the meditation practice, the whole of this Dhamma practice, is, is a training. It's called a training. It's understood as a training. We're training this, this uh, ability to be mindful, training in mindful awareness. We're training in, we're, we're learning to um, encourage and, and really start to rely on this simple capacity that we all have to be aware. And we all check it right now. There is awareness, is there awareness? Yes, you can say yes. And so then through this process of this training, we start to know directly what's the truth of things, you could say, or the nature. We start to see the nature of things and, and we start to trust this awareness, this ability to be awake and to know the truth of the moment, we start to trust that more than any part of the passing show of changing experience, changing phenomena. And we start to recognize things as they are in their arising without the need to judge them or to judge ourselves because they're happening. We start to see how our inner world works and the patterns and habits of mind that limit our our view and vision. And this, and we start, it starts to release the need to take it all personally because we see that it's conditions coming together, falling away, coming together, falling away. And we don't have to claim ownership of any of it as I, as me, as mine, as belonging to me, as myself. This is a quotation from Ajahn Sumedho. In, in a book called The Island. It's a beautiful book. Discusses and looks at this, what is meant by and how we might understand this, this idea of Nibbana. He says, the metaphor of the island that you cannot go beyond is so very powerful because it points to the principle of a, an awareness that you can't get beyond. It's very simple, very direct, and you can't conceive it. You have to trust it. You have to trust the simple ability we all have to be present and fully awake. The way of mindfulness is the way of recognizing conditions just as they are. We simply recognize and acknowledge their presence without blaming them or judging them or criticizing them or praising them. We allow them to be the positive and the negative both. And as we trust in this way of mindfulness more and more, we begin to realize the reality of the island that you cannot go beyond. So this is our practice, is this training 
in meeting the flow of our life just as it is, trusting this ability to be awake and aware that's always possible in any moment, no matter what's happening, training ourselves to let it come and go just in its nature without judging, blaming it or ourselves. And through this process, there's this natural way that we, that we, this training leads us to see then uh, more universal aspects of all of it, of any part of it, of all that is of the nature to arise. The common characteristics, and we've been talking about this in so many different ways, seeing that it's of the nature to arise and pass if it's impermanent. That is, it's just, this is, this is just the nature. And because of this, there's this um, unreliability. <laughs> nothing lasts. And we see that it's, it has a corelessness. It's um, empty of anything that's has ongoing existence or permanence. There's no controllability. It's not amenable to our will in an ultimate way. And this inclines the mind, seeing this, not thinking about it, inclines the mind to release, to letting go. In one teaching, uh, or one place in the, in the suttas, the Buddha was asked if he could summarize his teachings in one short phrase. And he said he could. Four words, four words. Sabbe dhamma nalam abhini vesaya. Usually it's translated as nothing whatsoever should be clung to. Sometimes nothing is to be clung to as I, as me, as mine. And anything anyone says in any dhamma talk is in service of this understanding. And anything the Buddha ever taught was in service of this, this, this understanding, this teaching. And there are volumes of discourses. But he said, this sums it up. And he then emphasized the power of it by saying that if anyone had heard this, they had heard all of the teachings. If they had practiced it, they had practiced all of the teachings and if they had realized the fruit of practicing it, they had realized all possible fruits of the practice. That's a pretty powerful statement to make. Nothing whatever to be clung to, attached to, held on to. So we could, we could change it in those ways, not hold on to anything. He didn't say, Except this. There was no exception. There was nothing left out. Nothing. Or you could say, let go. Let everything go or let it be. Just let it be. And famous lines from Ajahn Chah, the Thai forest master. He said, do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you get let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. 
different way of saying that. Sally's been giving a series of talks on the uh, four establishments or four foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana discourse, this beautiful discourse that gives us such clear instructions for our practice. And, and she's uh, spoken this um, refrain that ends pretty much every section in there. It's repeated 13 times in this discourse. It's a, uh, uh, a refrain that ends each section within there that is kind of a summary of how we approach the practice and she's gone through this. And the last line in that, which she has mentioned uh, on a couple of times, uh, the very last line says, one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That's how he ends that, practice in this way. And I used to think, oh, well, this is, he ended it because he's saying this is, this is the, the end of the path, <laughs> a description of the, the realization that if you, if you do it right, then maybe someday you, you abide independently <laughs> without clinging. I used to think it was not, a, an, I used to not hear it as an instruction, but as a description of the end of the path. But more recently, I've, I've taken that also as an instruction. This is an instruction too. Everything else is. Why wouldn't that be? We can put it into practice. We can abide independently in any moment, not clinging to anything in the world. I just mentioned a couple of, of ways that we might think about this or might, uh, might start to do it in moments. How could we practice that? So the first way that, that I'll talk about is, has to do with really um, tuning, turning, opening to uh, the truth of impermanence, not abstractly, but in each moment. Letting our focus go more to this arising and ceasing that is the ongoing nature of things because everything in the body, mind, heart, internally, everything externally, this is the nature of it. It's, so it's, it's, it doesn't take any breaks from that. <laughs> it's always doing it. So we can notice that in any moment. State of constant flux there. Most of the time, what we get caught up in is the process of it. In the details of it, you could say. In the world of all the contacts, the, sense, the, the, the sensations, the sights, the sounds all of that and all that we think and feel about it and what it means about me. We get swirled up in that and we lose sight of the fact that it's always changing where there's this kind of fascination with the contents of it that leads us to lose sight of the fact that, yeah, all that stuff is true and it's also always constantly changing. And it's, if we look closely, it's changing incredibly rapidly so rapidly we can't keep up with it. But we tend to lose sight of this and we attribute a reality, a solidity to it all that it doesn't actually possess. And there seem to be so many issues to deal with. And you know, there's so much wanting and not wanting and liking and disliking and 
reactivity and there's got to be something to do about it. There must be something I have to do about it. Because <laughs> there's so, so much of it I don't like, and so much of it I do like, and all that. And we, we see it in terms of a sense of something we have to do about it. This is uh, from a teacher in uh, Thailand, uh, Upasaka Ki Nanayon, in a book called Pure and Simple. She was a, a lay woman who was a highly revered teacher in Thailand who died, I think, in the 1970s. This is a quotation from that book. If you look into the rippling current of your experience, you'll find that there's actually nothing you can latch onto as having any essence. Everything disbands and disappears. New fabrications arise and pass away, arise and pass away. They keep on flowing and they seem to involve many issues. But actually there aren't many issues. There's really only this arising, remaining and passing away. It's because we're so focused on not seeing this that there seem to be so many issues. But no matter how many there are, there's really only just this, arising, remaining, and passing. Like a rippling current of water, where the, wa- where the rippling isn't a thing at all. We get so caught up in the details and the content that we we lose sight of of the fact that it's just this flow and we we can take a step back a little half step back and just let it flow it's going to do it anyway it's doing it anyway and we may find then at moments that this independent abiding is possible right there if we just let it just let nature do nature and let us be part of that let go of this sense we've got to do something about it. We can just look simply at the present moment as it is, does its thing. And we just let it be. Now this is a continuation from Upasaka Ki. If you learn to see skillfully in this way, you'll see that all things arise, remain, and pass away. The past has passed away. The future hasn't yet come. Look simply at the present arising and passing away right before your eyes and don't hold on. When you see arising, remaining and passing away, pure and simple, right in the present moment and then let go, that's when you gain release. A second way that we might in moments start to open into this abiding, this independent abiding, is by resting our attention more and more within the quality of awareness itself. You could say letting mindfulness take that, the aware mind, as its object, resting there. I guess I guess about a year and a half ago, I, I came uh, and was able to do three retreats in a row here in the retreat center. And one of them was taught by um, 
Venerable Sayadaw Utejaniya, who we have spoken about, Burmese teacher. And uh, one time he would come and sit with us in the morning and he would um, just kind of say stuff. <laughs> he'd, he just would say something and then he'd sit quietly and then something else would come and he'd say that. And it wasn't a series of instructions, just a series of short reflections. But one time he said something like this. This is a, not a direct quotation, but he said, awareness is your true home. You should just stay home where you belong. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. And, and there was some way that, for me, it was like, I had this sense, oh, I... I can just stay here. I don't have to pick anything up. I don't have to go and pick it up. I'll just stay here. That's how it was for me. Oh, I'll just stay here. And this idea of I don't have to reach out and take hold of any of it. It's like Upasaka Key said, there's nothing to latch on to. I, I don't need to pick it up. Just let it be. If we let our, intention, our attention, our mindfulness rest within this quality of awareness itself, then things just, they just do their thing. <laughs> and they're just gonna do their thing anyway, as I said. We let them arise and pass away, it's their nature to do that. We might find this in moments even. It may not be a permanent situation, but in moments we may touch this sense of, oh, I can just abide this independent abiding, I'll just stay here. You might find that it's actually possible in any moment. And we might find that there are moments when there is nothing latched onto, nothing is grasped hold of. It's just flow of contacts and the knowing of them. They're arising and passing and we're not grasping at any of it or identifying with it as mine, as me, as belonging to me. And if we just let nature do its thing, allow it all to flow and arise and cease as is its nature, this seeing, just seeing this and this realization of this arising and this cessation, it starts to increase our, our confidence and trust in, in this letting go, this non-attachment, this Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to, grasped hold of, identified with. And non-clinging to anything. One abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. We may discover in moments that that is actually our experience. This is another, uh, again, from Ajahn Sumedho. As we keep reflecting on this, the tendency toward attachment falls away and the reality of non-attachment, of non-grasping, reveals itself in what we can say is Nibbana. If we look at it in this way, Nibbana is here and now. It's not an attainment in the future. That reality is here and now. It's so very simple, but it's beyond description. It can't be bestowed or even conveyed. It can only be known by each person for themselves. So I wanna end tonight with a teaching 
a very famous teaching that many of you will know. Um, and this is one of those teachings where someone gets enlightened after hearing it. So I'm counting on you. <laughs> and you know, I used to hear these stories and I used to think, well, you know, they added that on to make the Buddha look good <laughs> or something like that. And all the 500 realized enlightenment and were happy. But I have had experiences in hearing the Dhamma that have made it absolutely clear to me that this is a possibility. That if one listens in the right way and there is a certain ripeness there, that that one can have profound realization through hearing words, even though that realization is not on the level of the words, they can trigger an understanding. And I know of uh, people in modern days who on hearing the Dhamma realized had deep realization in this way. So it is a real possibility, I believe, very clearly and in my own experience. Uh, there's certainly a, a very clear sense of this possibility. So no promises, but why not? <laughs> so this is a, a teaching to the ascetic Bahia, the Bahia Sutta. Bahia of, uh, he was known as Bahia of the bark cloth, and this was an ascetic at the time of the Buddha, and he had... Um, he was living in this situation where he had fashioned himself robes out of, made out of the bark, beaten bark. Maybe he was kind of looking a bit like a tree, I'm not sure. And he was, he was living near the seashore and he, he was living at the base of trees dressed in these bark robes and he was getting a lot of attention and offerings from people in that area. And he, he was a sincere yogi, but he was perhaps a bit in the deluded category. And he, he thought maybe he was enlightened. So he was getting a lot of attention and respect paid. And um, it's said that a kindly deva, uh, a different kind of um, celestial being who had been a relative of Bahia's in a past life came down and said, hey Bahia, not only are you not enlightened, you're not doing anything that's gonna get you there. <laughs> and and Bahia, he was sincere and he said, well, okay, give me some advice, what can I do? I, I really am interested in, in understanding. Is there a teacher? And this, Deva said, there is a teacher, there's a Buddha. He's living way up north there. He can show you, he can give you something that you can practice. He can point you towards this realization. So Bahia made a, a long journey to find the Buddha and he, said that he showed up at a time when the Buddha was out on alms round and daily walking through the, the village where he was living at that time to receive offerings of food for his meal for that day. And Bahia uh, goes running and he finds after and finds the Buddha on alms round and he says, Venerable, please give me some teachings, anything. And the Buddha said, not now Bahia, I'm on alms round, this is not the time. And, and Bahia says, please, we don't know what's going to happen. Please give me teachings. And the Buddha said, chill out, Bahia. 
I'm paraphrasing the Buddha. <laughs> this is not the time. <laughs> but he has said a third time, please, Venerable Sir, give me some, any kind of some teaching because we don't know what's coming. We don't know when we'll have this chance. And it's often in, the ca- in these suttas, if you ask the Buddha three times, he says, okay. So this is the teaching that he gave to Bahia at this time. Then Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. This is how you should train yourself. When for you there is only the scene in reference to the scene, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then Bahia, there is no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor there, nor anywhere in between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. This simplicity of that, the beauty and simplicity of that teaching in reference to the scene, just the scene, that which is heard, sensed, realized in the mind, Let it be only that. Another pointing to this possibility of an independent abiding. And no need to grasp any of it. Then there's no you there in reference to that. And it said that Bahia was... um, he heard these words from the Buddha and he was, that was all it took. <laughs> Thank you, Venerable Sir. Bowed to the Buddha. And it said that, that Bahia, he, he left and he was, he was run down and killed by a mad cow. <laughs> and he actually left that, that scene bowing to the Buddha and he, he didn't live. So that the monks said, asked the Buddha about his his future, and the Buddha said, Bahia was wise, there will be no more becoming. Done is what had to be done in this case. So it was good that he, he asked the Buddha that third time, give me the teachings now, please, Venerable Sir. So we can train in this way. in reference to the seen, only the seen, and so forth. That which is sensed, any contact, just that. Some deep simplicity there. So let's sit, let these words drift off, and just sit quietly in that simplicity for a moment.
Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.